Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Vox <laughs> Podcast with uh, Bonnie Lewis, Boop, podcasting from Texas, and uh, myself, Tim, <laughs> podcasting from California. All right, so here we are, hanging out. Bonnie's out there in Texas, loving life, riding her Peloton bike. Boom. Which I still don't quite know what it means, but it's happening. <laughs> I think it's the perfect introvert exercise from the description that Bonnie has given if as I'm an extreme introvert. So if I could exercise at home like that, I think that might be the best version. You know what? It's actually also a um, good form of exercise. It sounds terrible, but I'm, you know, I'm kind of a germaphobe. So uh, I don't want to go in the spin room with all those sweaty people. Yeah. And so here it's just me and my own germs. Yeah. I can see that. I'll have to probably bring that up in therapy and see what she says about it, <laughs> but that's okay. That's got to be kind of common, I think. I just had that conversation in my classroom yesterday because the one of the classrooms I'm in is one of the oldest ones in the school, and the chairs are ancient, and it's oh. just hard not to think about how many butts have been in that chair. <laughs> it is so true. It is so true. That is what happens. Um, anyway, I mean, as far as like video game exercising, which for some reason, that's how I correlate that. I still have my power pad to my original Nintendo. Oh yeah. Like the original, like, so it, you have like the, you do the world-class track meet on the, the Oh, on the power pad. Yes. And, oh, I remember yeah. that. Okay. Although we don't of... ever run on it. We just get on our, on the ground and like hit it with our hands <laughs> yeah, really fast. So you're like, that guy's flying. Okay. Speaking, I don't think I've ever told you this. My speaking of video game exercising my brother-in-law started a company and invented a product and they have two gyms so far and the third one opening up in dc so one in san francisco one in boise where they live and the company is and then one in dc it's called black box vr and it's a vr headset and then you go in a room and you have like pulleys and stuff but it is a video game so you're doing all these movements and like scoring points and That's smart. I did it because like when he was like in his test stages. So we went, we're in town. So we went to go do it. I don't like video games. I don't like that kind of exercise or to do weights. And it was the most fun. It was so, and it went by <laughs> in like three seconds. And yeah. I was so sore, Tim. Like I consider myself like a lowbrow athlete. Okay. <laughs> and I... <laughs> Like I can hold my own. Like I'm not gonna die doing something, but I can't do a lot. Did that make sense? I'm sort of in the middle there. Anyways, and I was so sore that on the third day, when I still could not walk without pain, I just like had to smash like four Advil. So I was like, I can't do this. Hey, this, it's this really weird thing where we keep getting older. I know it's so. And tr- I keep and- hitting these milestone birthdays, and then I'll hit. The, it's not the milestone birthday that throws me off as much as the one that's directly after it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So like thirty was like, oh, this is really. I had a great thirtieth birthday, and it was yeah. awesome party. And then, but then all of a sudden, I turned thirty-one, and I was like, wait, what? Like I didn't think. I, you just don't ever yeah. plan on these. The I next know. one, I know. But anyways, the it was. It's a cool concept because like VR. It's just yeah, crazy smart. from the trackpad to the VR, like how far we've gone. <laughs> it's kind of scary. Yes. But this is a good it's like transition. It's a plot for Terminator. There you go. 
Um, that's really, this is a good transition because on today's show, we have Dr. Cynthia Schaefer, Schaefer Elliott, and she was amazing. I thought what she brought to the table was so cool. So she is a professor, but she's also an archaeologist. And um, you will hear in the episode coming up, but one of the things she discusses is on these big digs she goes on um, in Israel and kind of, um, she does, is it, does she do stuff like in very particular, like biblical places? Is that correct? Yeah, they're all in Israel. Okay. Or not all, and that's where she's been digging recently. Recently. I can't remember what she said for, she had a bunch of different ones, but she talks about them on the interview. Yeah, she talks all about them, but um, it's just cool because one of the things she said is that she's like, we don't find these big things, we find all these small things, yeah. and it's that that tells us what a society was like. So it's just fascinating when you like, that conversation sort of juxtaposes what we're just talking about, about how like yeah. technology expands and how really and truly even from just those two things like a nintendo to like a black box vr peloton bike situation how different our society really is the way we yeah. view bodies the way we view exercise the way we interact with each other like all those different things so anyways i think everyone's gonna really enjoy uh what what dr cynthia has to say yeah here we go Hey everybody, we are here with a very special guest, a new friend of mine um, that I've been really excited to bring into the conversations that we've been having. Her name is Dr. Cynthia Schaefer Elliott. She teaches at the very prestigious, really hard to teach at school, William Jessup University. Welcome, Cynthia, to the Vox Podcast. Good morning. Welcome. Thanks for that introduction. Who gave that intro because he also teaches with Cynthia. That's right. I feel like, I feel like we, we, we both teach at the same college, but I feel like what we do is very different. I feel like you're playing Major League Baseball and I'm coaching T-ball. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> oh, that is such a good analogy. Everyone's important at Jessup. That's right. We're just one, we're one big happy family. That's right. You know what? I think you and I had talked about the fact that we went to the same high school. What? Yes. I was just telling my colleague Mark about that this morning. Mark, and now your new friend, Mark. I'm making Um, friends everywhere. You are making friends everywhere. Um, You're likable though. You are likable. So we, I think though, were you a freshman my senior year? I'm not, you know, I was actually at a different high school my freshman year. I transferred over my sophomore year, and I think I was a year behind your sister. Okay. If I remember correctly. Because I was there. Yeah, I think I was probably gone by then. Damien and I, my brother in law, Mm -hmm. uh, also your friend. (laughs) (laughs) I I think we we were gone by then, but we were. But then, looking at the thing, we went to the same college too. Yeah, Andrea, my sister, was telling me about that too. When were you? We were both at Simpson in Reading. And I went when... very late to Simpson because I was a, I decided to be a youth pastor for a while after high school because okay. people do that sometimes. You jumped right in. Yeah, when you're really uh-huh. close to the age of the kids that you're ministering to. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> With my broad theological knowledge I had at 20 or 21 or whatever it was. This is making me feel like in this week, instead of headshots, we should do high school yearbook picks. We could. Maybe we can dig those out for the <laughs> you know, oh, year. <laughs> my, mine's a doozy. I used to dress up like a, um, God, I can't believe my wife married me. 
I used to dress up like an old man to school. Oh, like what? I would wear like yeah, like really on purpose? like yes. <laughs> I tried very hard to be as different as I could from everybody else. I think I even shaved my head on the top like a bald, like I was oh bald and just had hair around like I the cannot. This is crown. a non-negotiable now. There has to be a picture. There yeah, you do. You need be. to share that. I had, I always straighten my hair and my yearbook picture. My husband was like, who is that? Because I have so much makeup, like, right? So yeah. much makeup and like glitter and like white eyeliner. I mean, it was white like eyeliner. Insane. Yeah. I know. And now I'm like, what's makeup? Like I don't even, <laughs> and so it was so trippy. I don't know. I don't know. Cynthia, what would you say your claim to fame style choice in high school was? In high school. Oh gosh! I mean, it me wasn't horribly. white eyeliner, obviously. No, it <laughs> just wasn't white so eyeliner. <laughs> um, no, I just had long, all. I think it's really common in high school for young, for girls and some guys, and it still is today because I, I see my daughter and her friends with it. The really long, one length, you know, hair. Oh, I was hair. so jealous yeah. the one length yeah yes because then when you put that up in a ponytail i mean that looked good the bun yeah. yeah that's when yes. the, bun, the messy bun mm -hmm. really started <laughs> yes <laughs> yes you know what? i'm not gonna lie i also did that in high school <laughs> oh the my messy gosh bun. tim <laughs> there you go <laughs> oh those were troubled times anyway um so cynthia we thought maybe we could just start by just kind of introducing yourself um you know, I saw your after Simpson, you went to some, uh, some, some colleges and some more fun areas like England. Um, yeah. can you just kind of give us a little, a little introduction to Dr. Schaefer Elliott? Sure. Yeah. Um, I, um, after college, so I got married and then went on for my master's at Ashland Theological Seminary. And that was an MA in um, Hebrew Bible and biblical studies concentrating in Hebrew Bible. And while they didn't have an archeology span program there per se, they did have an archeology span professor. And I had done archeology span as an undergrad, ancient history, biblical studies and archeology span as an undergrad. And I wanted to keep going down that path. Um, because I went to Israel a couple times as a student, as an undergrad, and we did a couple dig for a day, and I just loved it. And was that at uh, Simpson? Uh huh. Was it Simpson? Yeah, with uh, Dr. Schaefer. No relation, although he would love there to be. I remember. Um, him. Yeah, yeah, he was great. He was like my mentor as an undergrad, and um, I wanted to keep going down that path um, because I couldn't imagine doing anything else. It's not like I had this thought in my mind growing up that this was my path. In fact, it was, yeah, I was never really any good at school. <laughs> I was more of a social butterfly than an academic. So, um, but I fell in love with this stuff in college and I wanted to keep pursuing it. And so I did my master's, um, took enough, was it archaeology stuff, archaeology classes, as well as much as I could. And that's when I started digging um, full seasons instead of just, you know, being in Israel and going for a day. So I became mm. part of a, a, sta a team at the site of Tel Rahov, uh, which is uh, uh, in the Jordan Valley. 
um, about half an hour south of the Sea of Galilee Old Testament site. And then um, from there, I was teaching in upstate New York for a while and then uh, did my PhD. Well, I was working on a master's in theology at the place I was working at, but I was just doing that because I got a discount and I was just biding my time before my PhD. <laughs> um, so then I um, got to uh, got into the University of Sheffield in England. Uh, which Sheffield um, was really well known for having kind of kind of groundbreaking biblical studies. Uh, and I wanted a, a degree from uh, just a proper research university uh, in biblical studies, not theology. Um, there's, you know, I think there's a, a difference there. Um, and I wanted, you know, to also do more of the archaeology and the historical and cultural context. And Sheffield had that. And one of the professors there was um, someone I had excavated with at Rehove. Her name was Dr. Diana Edelman and really well known and well, you know, very prolific uh, scholar. And so I went there. My husband and I moved to England and I went there and did my Ph.D. And then I um, have been was able to get a job about a year, you know, started at, when I moved back from England, it was the middle of a recession, no one was hiring, um, but I let them know I was gonna be around and they hired me as an adjunct for that first year. And I was, you know, okay, is this gonna be a good fit? Kind of, you know, if they came to me and said, hey, we'd like to hire you. And I was just thinking about that. And at the end of the very first semester at Jessup, they said, oh yeah, we are gonna hire full-time Old Testament person and we'd like to encourage you to apply so I did and got the job awesome. yeah I've been here full-time since full-time since fall 2012 but I was part-time the year before that awesome so, yeah so now I'm the the associate dean of the faculty of theology at William Jessup and I'm also associate professor of Hebrew Bible and archaeology oh my gosh that is amazing <laughs> I'm like, it can happen. <laughs> well, you know, and the fact that I was, I mean, cause it's very difficult in academia to get a job, especially in the arts mm -hmm. and humanities and especially to get a job so soon after finishing, which is what we all hope for yeah. and pray for. Um, but you know, we were willing to go anywhere for my job. Um, mm -hmm. but I just happened to get a job in my home state. 30 minutes from my family where all my family was after being mm. gone for like 11 years. It was, That's crazy. Um, it is crazy. It really, I mean, normally you're lucky to get a job, but you have to move, you know, someplace that maybe you don't know anybody or, you know, yeah. just a different part of the country or even yeah. the world. That's how I felt too. This is the only, that was the only place I applied to, to work because we were planning on moving back up here. And I was like, well, there's not a ton of colleges in the area. I'll start here, see what happens. Then I got it and I was like, oh, all right. Great. <laughs> cool. Sure. Let's do I'm it. just like, I'm totally thrilled. And I'm, I know we want to get to the actual um, the meat of what you do, but I'm fascinated by just the, the image I have in my head of um, having your feminine perspective and feminine voice into the Old Testament conversation. Um, I just feel like so much, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but we have like so wrongly assumed all the time that the God of the old Testament, um, is so harsh and mean and awful. Mm -hmm. And it just seems, um, disconnected at times for people from sort of the compassion we see in Jesus. So I love the fact, like I went to seminary too, but I only had men 
Old Testament professors. Right. And then I often had women New Testament professors. So the idea that, um, and that just would have been a huge gift to me as a woman oh. seminary student. Yeah, that's re- that's true. Um, well, in fact, my, my Old Testament colleague here is also a woman, uh, Dr. Libby Backfish. Oh. And then before she came, I was the only, I had a colleague before um, who retired after my, I think my second year at Jessup, uh, Dr. Marilyn Copeland. And she was also okay. Hebrew Bible. Um, and so we've had at Jessup, we've had predominantly, you know, female Old Testament professors. So that, that is really, that is yeah. awesome. <laughs> we're getting some big, really getting some cool. big Jessup plugs in here. I don't know. If we they, are. If compensation for <laughs> we should owe you not, something. But... Sponsored by. <laughs> exactly. So I was thinking, um, you kind of talked about this a little bit, but like why archaeology? Like what, what is it about the, what is it about that that got into you that was just like, oh, you, cause you said you weren't necessarily that interested in academics. So something right. about this grabbed you and was like, we're going mm-hmm. this direction. Like, what was it about? Cause it's so yeah. specific. It's a very specific field of work. So what was it that kind of locked in that you locked that grabbed, like got its hooks in you and said, you're coming this way. Yeah. I think it was first the Hebrew Bible stuff, then the archeology span stuff. Cause I mean, I grew up in a mm-hmm. Christian home. Um, my, my parents became uh, Christians when I was about five. Uh, and so they were kind of new to the whole faith thing. And we were really involved in our church. I went to private school and I lo- always loved history. And I I always loved reading my Bible. And because my parents were kind of new Christians, they were never the no, don't ask questions Christian parents. Oh, cool. (laughs) I I didn't know that then, but looking back on it, I think that probably had a really um, big role in my curiosity um, that it was never, it was never told to me, oh, you can't ask those type of questions or don't ask questions yeah, at all. Or modeled, I guess it seems. Yeah, yeah, and they were a great model for me. Um, so when I went away to college and I went to a private uh, liberal arts school and we had to take you know, your intro to Old Testament and New Testament stuff. And I remember my very first semester being in my Old Testament class and just having this you know, feeling of, wow, I love this and I wanna keep studying it. And I, I know, you know, a lot of stuff, um, if I wasn't trying to, I didn't think I knew it all, of course, but I was like, oh, I know some of this and I want to keep studying it. And so mm-hmm. um, when I went to Israel for the first time with a, as a undergrad um, for a class, um, it just, it being there really struck me, the physicality of of the biblical text and hmm. um we did a dig for a day and then it was and, and we went we were digging at the caves of Mauritia and there was we found nothing so it wasn't like I found something that got me thinking oh this is so cool in fact you right. would have thought it would have done the opposite <laughs> <laughs> yeah like why are we out here right. doing this <laughs> we yeah. found I mean there were I think if I remember correctly there was some you know pigeon bones or something but that was about it but there was something about that first trip and being on that dig for the first time that resonated with me where I thought how this is 
the physicality of of ancient mm-hmm. history. This is the physicality of what the Bible attempts to reflect. And um, and being on a dig, um, like for me, there I have a lot of archaeologist friends who are um, really interested in maybe ceramics, like the the vessel, like a, a cooking pot. And they're really interested in you know, how was that made, the clay, the fire, the temper, you know, all this technical stuff. And I find that stuff interesting too. But for me, what really resonated with me is what's the story behind the artifact? Mm -hmm. Who made it? When did they make it? How did they make it? Who used it? How did they use that? Mm -hmm. Let's say stick with the cooking pot. What kind of meals were prepared in that? Who were they preparing it for? Um, mm. you know, so really the stories behind, you know, the archeology span is what has always fascinated with, fascinated me. So I just kept going. <laughs> just kept digging, you could say. I just kept digging. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So let's, That's I think really that cool. most of our audience probably, like I said, we haven't had anybody on that, um, in, in your field that has kind of your, your angle on um, history and whatnot. So let's plant everybody in like, I don't know if it's archeology span one-on-one or whatever, but like, <laughs> what's, what, what do you tell students? Um, like, how do you, how do you introduce this to, to the freshman or to the, you know, the kid that's coming in and is like, Hey, I don't know. Like maybe I'm interested in this. Maybe I'm not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I pitched this actually to one of my students that didn't know we had an archeology span department. And I was like, Oh, you didn't know. <laughs> Well, we technically don't have an archaeology department. So I lied. <laughs> but we do have, we do, you will, we have me basically, um, uh, where you can take archaeology classes. We've got a few. Uh, we And you can concentrate in, um, you know, archaeology of ancient Israel, basically. And that's through the, the faculty of theology. Um, but what I do is I tell them that, you know, with the way I approach the biblical text is through a, a contextual perspective. I'm interested in the geographical context, um, the literary context, the historical context, and the cultural and social context. And archaeology really right. helps inform uh, the cultural context, definitely. And mm-hmm. so the way I, I mean, I talk about archaeology and I talk about well what does it mean to do archaeology uh, in ancient Israel in particular sites that are um, from the Iron Age which is the predominant time period that the Old Testament reflects um, and so you know we talk about you know, what does that mean how do you do it but then I also try to show in class especially in the intro the surveyed uh, course of the Old Testament that you know I teach and every everyone has to take here um, is that it's when we're reading the biblical text and we are so separate from it, separated from it by a vast amount of time and space. And especially the old Testament, people read the old Testament or if they read it, most of them just right. avoid it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it it is. And I kind of don't blame them because it's, it's so long and it's so complicated it seems complicated um i would say it's more complex than anything but um 
yeah, just it, there's so much weird stuff in it <laughs> that if you don't yeah. you know, have someone to kind of talk through it or take a class or something, I can understand why that would be really overwhelming. So when we, what I try to do in class is to demonstrate that, you know, there's all these really interesting passages that we kind of gloss over um, or maybe we just skip them altogether. But how if we do yeah. a little bit of, of background into the cultural context, um, it could really shed a lot of light on some uh, passages that are very confusing or just like like which what what's a main one that you run into a lot? Sure. So the one I do in my introduction class um, is uh, the story in uh, Judges um, wh where you're focusing on Deborah the judge, but it's really the story of Yael. Uh, the Kenite and Sisera, uh, the the leader of the the Canaanite army of the city of Hatzor, and how Deborah and Barak mm -hmm. go to battle against Jabin, the king of Hatzor, and his commander Sisera, and how Sisera flees the battle, and he goes to the tent of Yael, and Yael, spoiler alert, ends up killing him, uh, mm -hmm. and the whole story before that people go well why why did she kill him it doesn't seem like he did anything wrong but if you look at the cultural context especially and social context really uh hospitality norms in the ancient near east um that text is full of if you have that kind of background or if you can do a little bit of research and see that oh wait a minute he is breaking every single norm hospitality norm in that Sisera is and that if you were a woman in that day and age and he was breaking all those hospitality norms you would understand that you and your household are under threat hmm. mm. that's yeah so we talked about this a little bit yesterday the maybe you can go a little bit more with that the we've we've had a conversation through various guests and lenses about context has been up coming up a lot lately. Like, yeah, it is. I'm, um, I'm yeah. happy to see that it finally is getting its, its turn. <laughs> yeah. I think people are starting yeah. to ask questions about, you know, not, I think, you know, we had a conversation here the other day here as in, in my home, um, about like how technology has affected, we were talking about, um, whether or not churches should be sermon centric mm. anymore. Mm. And we were talking about the uh, the history of the kind of the gospel and technology. So it was like the Roman road, how, what the, the effect that the Roman road had on, you know, apostles being able to go out and bring the word to people who never had, had it before. And then right. um, the effect of like the printing press, because they were delivering scrolls that were only printed on one side. And then what the printing press did for mass production, for more containable production, like mm -hmm. deliverable production. And then what radio and TV did to spread it out more and, and kind of how yeah was, the internet yeah mm -hmm. so the demand kept growing and the supply was trying to kind of match that but we just recently got to a place where since the invention of the printing press there's well, some some are arguing that since the invention of the printing press we're at like one of the biggest technological um booms mm -hmm. and that being with the internet and with digital technology supply has kind of overshadowed demand for the one of the first times mm -hmm. ever Hmm. And so now we're at this place where that's interesting. People have like everybody has a phone in their pocket that has access to teaching from the entire planet. 
right. and all this stuff. And so yeah. now we have so much supply. I think people are, are now trying to wrestle with saturation. Well, now I, yeah. <laughs> and like, what does that mean? And how do we, how do we adapt to that? But then I think it's brought up a lot of the context because now people have a little bit more questions like, right. And so I mentioned like we had, um, Tim Mackey from the Bible project come on and he kind of talked about, I think Mike had asked him something about how do we, how do people approach the old Testament or problems with the old Testament or not wanting to read it and cause it's confusing. Mm-hmm. And so he talked a little bit about genres, um, right. of literature and stuff. And I know that that's kind of in your wheelhouse too. Maybe you can speak a little bit to that since we are talking about context. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and, and a lot of people will say, well, how do I find out about this kind of stuff? Well, right. a good study Bible is actually really helpful. Um, the two that I, I recommend to my students is one, the, um, the new Oxford annotated NRSV. Uh, that's a really good one. And then also the NIV cultural background study Bible is actually very, very helpful oh, nice. too. Um, but the way um the way I like to think about it is, you know, we, as far as, as human beings, you know, we love, um, we love reading, we love watching things, we love listening to podcasts now, you know, (laughs) and that there are so many different genres of literature, genres of TV shows and movies. Mm. And, you know, if we were to say, hey, let's list some of our favorite genres of, of movies, as I do with my students, you know, they'll list off romantic comedies, um, science fiction, fantasy, horror, you know, we'll, we'll list off, you know, action and all sorts of different genres. And we kind of get into that conversation and I say, well, you know, if you're watching a film that starts within a galaxy far, far away, you instinctively know how to watch that film. Yeah. You're, you know, right. you're not going to watch it like you're watching a Ken Burns documentary, <laughs> right? Yeah. You instinctively know, yeah. or when you are watching a Ken Burns documentary, which I love, um, you know how to watch that differently. The same if you're reading yeah. an obituary, you're going to read that differently than the way you read an op-ed piece in the New York Times mm-hmm. um, if people are reading newspapers. And I guess the same could, we could say the same with podcasts now too. If you're listening to a podcast that is um, giving you, uh, it's like a fiction, it's like a story, yeah. then you're going to listen to that very differently than the way you listen to say this podcast. And we instinctively yeah. know how to do those things. <clears throat> But for some reason, and and ancient literature has a lot of different genres too. Uh, And you approach, Mm -hmm. you would approach, say, um, a Babylonian creation story very differently than you would an Egyptian love song, right? You would approach all those very differently. But for some reason, when it comes to the Bible, people don't do that. No. Right? It's like they read it through the same as the same genre throughout the entire way, the whole thing. Yeah. When in actuality, it is full, full of so many different genres that were popular in the ancient Near East and in the classical and uh, classical Hellenistic and Roman worlds. It's just, it's full of it. And in fact, there's no, I would say, and I could be wrong, but I would say that there's no genre in the Bible that is unique to Israel. 
it's unique to its its yeah. world it's it's its world it's, yeah you know cultural global context really but for some reason yeah. when we read let's say the old testament we end up reading the law a law let's say you're reading you know part of leviticus <laughs> You're reading Leviticus the same way. If somebody yeah, if someone's is reading, reading Leviticus, <laughs> right? But we yeah. tend to read the Bible through as just if it's one genre, mm-hmm. as opposed to reading mm-hmm. law differently than you would read a psalm. Um, yeah, that's no. You're so right about that. You know, I learned. I was listening. I went. I went to seminary and learned this, but then you sometimes relearn sure, things ten years absolutely. later. Yeah, <laughs> it got lost in the semester papers. Um, but I was listening to something from PNs mm-hmm. and on um, um, the Book of Exodus and the plagues, right. and about um, mythical, like mythical mm-hmm. history, and that that is a genre. Yeah. And so the important one, there's many important parts of the plagues, but one of the most crucial parts is that, um, it's written in mythical history and how, um, the, how the Israelites would have seen what was happening and would have understood what was happening, which was like, this is a battle of Yahweh and the gods. The cosmic forces. Who has control over the cosmic forces. Yeah. And it almost matters more to understand Mm -hmm. that than to worry about did this actually happen were there actually this play because it was like no there's so much knowledge and wisdom right. in how the text is approached in the in the uh, literary genre right. of it and one of the things i think yeah. you're absolutely right bonnie i and one of the things that i tell my students to try to simplify things is your form or your genre your form helps determine function yeah. right so if you're absolutely. wondering about a passage and you say, okay, well, what is its form? You know, is it, is it a law? Is it narrative? Is it, Mm -hmm. and if it's narrative, what kind of narrative is it? Is, is it a creation narrative? Is it a birth narrative? Is it a calling narrative? I mean, there's so reluctant hero narrative. I mean, even just those little subgenres and how just being able to think about, okay, what is its form or its genre and and what does that form or genre, what is it, you know, what is the function of that? Right. What is it in of itself right. telling exactly. us? Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. you know, even though literary analysis is not exact, you know, it's not my area of expertise, but I, I find um, that super valuable when people are, are mm-hmm. particularly are confused about the Old Testament because it's like, well, let's think right. about how you're reading it first. You know, if you're mm-hmm. reading it as yeah. one whole genre, um, then yeah, of course it's going to be confusing. Yeah, but if we crazy valuable, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I would, it's I super helpful. Just that one little thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that did that. Look at, they just learned that here on this podcast. <laughs> they didn't need to go to school <laughs> to do it. But you know, I will say like, it's for some people that have never heard like heard that um you can kind of feel betrayed a bit mm-hmm. because uh what's that movie with um i'm not bradley it just came out oh, a star is born oh, is that right with bradley i haven't Cooper? seen the whole thing but yeah i know what one you mean okay so i was under the impression it was a rom-com <laughs> so when you're talking <laughs> That's about why i haven't <laughs> finished it because i know it's not <laughs> so 
I'm like, yeah. My husband's like, do you want to watch that? I'm like, totally. And he was looking kind of shocked. And I thought, like, what a weird expression. But I didn't <laughs> dig in there. I was like, oh, whatever. So we start watching it. And then halfway through, I'm like, this is not, not going to end well. And then, like, when it, when he dies, spoiler Whoa. alert, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so mad. <laughs> I was not a good date movie. Because I was like, why did... Yes, I was like, why didn't you tell me? Like, why didn't you? And he's like, oh, I thought I thought you knew. And I remember that veil kind of being lifted of like, how come I've sat Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and I've read devotional after devotional after devotional and nobody has told me this? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why? Well, first of all. And what, in your mind, like, First yeah. of all, that's the fourth version of A Star is Born. <laughs> so I think you should know by now. No, I didn't. I was like, I, I Tim, I'm culturally a little inept. Streisand, so- Judy Garland, it goes back. I mean, that's that's a that's a told story. Oh no! So I I see that I was way in the dark. Okay. <laughs> no, I think, and so I, uh, I especially now with within that context of like how readily available information is. Now this conversation becomes interesting because mm-hmm. I think yes a people do feel betrayed i'm sure a lot of people feel super frustrated where it's like well then i'm not if i'm not learning right and we had this conversation and we don't have to go down this path but we had this conversation in lieu of um god's judgment and it's mm-hmm. like well what is god going to yeah. judge us for because there's things that the bible says will be judged for but then you keep learning through you learn uh an, the correct context to have read a piece of scripture through it and it's totally different than what you grew up knowing like, well, then what are we being judged for if none of us know how to read the Bible correctly? Right, right, right. So and I think that's really interesting. Do we, either of those um, uh, study Bibles that you mentioned, do either of them deal with this, like deal with genre or um, understanding yeah. how to approach and read? Sure. I mean, there there are um, the NRSV one, which is usually my English, uh, the Oxford one, usually my English translation of choice, and plus because it is an ecumenical one, so it has the deuterocanonical texts um, between the Old Testament and the the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So anybody from any, I mean, if you come from a Catholic background or orth, Christian Orthodox background, those texts are in there as well. Um, so that's really helpful. Um, especially for those Protestants who maybe come from an evangelical background who are unfamiliar that there are even, there's even other books, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you yeah. know, like first through fourth Maccabees and Tobit and Judith and which are part of the canon for our, our Christian Orthodox and, and Catholic um, brothers and sisters. Yeah. That's fascinating. It is. Yeah. So you always have to ask, okay, well, which Bible are you reading? Are you reading the Protestant? Bible? Are you reading the mm. Christian Orthodox Bible? Are you reading the uh, Catholic Bible? Are you reading the Jewish Tanakh, you know, the Hebrew Bible? Mm-hmm. Um, so when we talk about like these Bibles, um, you know, translation is important, um, but a good study Bible, um, especially one that is is maybe not like that the what i like about the oxford one is that it's it is more on the academic side and so it's not going to shy away from having discussions of authorship and audience Mm. and um you know okay what are the possible dates are there you know how is how is this passage structured and there's some essays in the back of it that are are also helpful 
Um, and the NIV cultural background ones too is, is also very good. And so while it may not get you into, okay, you know, biblical exegesis, how do you read the biblical text? And that's a class that we teach here at Jessup. All of our students have to take um, is how- Jessup plug. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's my world. <laughs> I'm, kidding. Um, I'm totally kidding. But, you know, you, you're trying to teach people how to read the Bible. Yeah. Um, And I think when it comes to our churches, I think our pastors and our our church staff, they've been a pretty difficult situation because you have um, kind of, we're kind of in this post-Christian environment where people don't, you can't assume, you know, they go to church um, and you can't assume they know when, if they do go to church, what kind of biblical education or even theological education that they've had because our pastors um you know they get people for maybe an hour once a week and you do have to decide okay what's what are we going to use that sermon time for you know are we going to use it to Mm -hmm. encourage motivate people to aspire to you know living Christ-filled lives, or are we going to give them, uh, you know, an hour's worth of, and then Paul went here, and then Paul went there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally get it. I just think I, um, and I guess it depends too how you're wired. Mm-hmm. Right. Like for me, it makes a huge difference, right. um, but I don't know that that's true. I don't know that's true for everybody, but a question is um, something I rub up against and people ask me like, Oh, what book did you read to learn that? And I give them the book and then I'm like, did you read that later? Like follow Mm -hmm. up? Did you read that book? And they're like, it was so boring. (laughs) What? And I'm like, that's true. (laughs) Um, What is a way or like favorite resources or topics or like um, how can people sort of learn in this in more engaging way that like spark something within them? Yeah. And I think that's where podcasts are really becoming quite helpful. Mm. Um, so uh, you mentioned Pete Enns's book earlier um, and his podcast yeah. with Jared Bias, The Bible for Normal People, uh, which I'm sure a lot mm-hmm. of your listeners are already familiar with. They, um, they do yeah. a really good job at trying to take what biblical scholarship and theological scholarship, what they're doing and making it accessible to a wider audience. Uh, And you've got Mm -hmm. different scholars and just authors who are also doing that. So like, again, Pete and and Jared are doing um, different books now too, but you've got scholars like N.T. Wright. um, You have Mm -hmm. um, the late author, um, Rachel Held Evans, um, Mm -hmm. who were really doing some good work and making what scholars do available to a wider audience and making it more palatable. And that's one of the things Mm -hmm. a scholarly community is, is not so great at doing is making what we do accessible to a wider audience. I do think public Mm -hmm. scholarship is really important um, and not just writing for our fellow academic nerds, (laughs) but writing for our, (laughs) for our other nerds who are out there. Um, but yeah, I would say maybe look up some good podcasts. Um, I mean, you guys are certainly doing your part. There's OnScript that's doing that too. Um, you know, we have one here. 
Oh, the Bible Project. The Bible Project, another great one. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of really good ones out there that are making what, um, instead of reading something, maybe listening to an interview with a scholar or um, like the Bible Project doing what they're doing and breaking things down into a pretty creative way. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Well, and I think, tell us, okay, let's go back to archaeology. Tell us what you do on a dig. Like, I'm totally naive. What do you find? What are you looking for? We're not looking for the Ark of the Covenant. (laughs) We're not looking for Noah's Ark. I'm looking for Noah's Ark. (laughs) I want to know if you're, like, are we going to find, yeah, like, what is, I think that is, like, It is what people think of, yeah. And it's so funny because, um isn't that how we view faith, right? Like we're all looking for these big signs, these big movements, these big things. And it's like, no, it's in the, it's in the small right. things. It's in the pots, it's in the mundane. It's in right. the, that we find the most meaning and value. Right. So anyways, I think I just jumped yeah, ahead. You're but- good because <laughs> that's one of the things I, I talk and write about too, is um, the monumental versus the mundane. That's actually the, the language I use. And uh, where we're so focused, hyper-focused on the monumental, the fantastic. And, yeah. and if we truly want to understand ancient Israel and Judah better, we really need to shift our attention from the monumental, like the temples and palaces yeah. and priests and kings and prophets, to your everyday life. And your everyday life is going to yeah. be very, you know, it's not going to be, you know, super you know, fantastic or just it's, I think it is, but it's also going to be, well, this is how they, these people lived. So on the digs, we, um, you know, we get up very early because we dig in four weeks, usually in the summertime, because most of the people who are on staff on a dig are professors and most of our volunteers are students and anyone can volunteer on an excavation. Uh, Most of the time you can go for a week, maybe two weeks, but most of the digs are four weeks long. And yeah, so uh, one of the digs I'm a part of. Gosh, that's every day. You're just like out there digging. uh, Five days a week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Get the weekend. Oh my goodness. I don't think I could do that. We start at five in the morning. (laughs) I'm just saying, I don't think I could. (laughs) I can get up that early for four weeks. Uh, but, um, yeah. yeah, Cause we, like, I think I could get up that early. I'm saying like out in the hot sun digging through the dirt yeah and it's cynthia like seriously every every time you tell me something else you're doing i just want to be like she is such a badass (laughs) (laughs) i cannot handle it (laughs) well you know it it is hard work i mean because israel um like a lot of places in the in the middle east we have what there are called tells and tells are basically they're mounds that are layers of a buried city basically and oh, yeah, wow. and so most of archaeology in ancient Israel is focused on these tells, which is again kind of monumental. I mean, these are fortified cities. This is not where most of your average Israelites and Judahites would have lived. Most of them would have lived in rural villages mm-hmm. and farmsteads, and quite a few lived in these in these cities. So we do get a good glimpse of daily life in there, but. Um, yeah, it just depends on what your site is, what their research questions are, what time period they're focused yeah. on, um, what questions they're trying to answer. Um, so, of course, the ones I'm a part of are um, focused on Old Testament time periods, primarily the Iron Age. Um, my site, so I'm work, I work at two sites right now. One site we are in the process of 
processing all of our excavation data to publish, and that's called Tel Halif, and that's down south uh, in the southern part of Israel. And um, it's what we are focusing on there is household archaeology. And so there's this row of houses that were built up against the city wall that we've been excavating. And these are from the 8th century BC, BCE. So basically the time of, if you know your biblical timeline at all, this would be the time of King Hezekiah of Judah and Isaiah the prophet. Mm. And so we're excavating these houses and finding out what life was like and wow. you know how they lived uh, probably in community together and um yeah it's great to and that's mm -hmm, fascinating it's quite fascinating and then the, this town like many in judah were destroyed by the neo-assyrians in 701 bc bce so we have um some very clear what we call stratigraphy because of that destruction it's so interesting. I, wow. I, I'm so I'm very visually minded. So I, yeah, me too. when you talk about this, I think about it like Wes Anderson films <laughs> and you know how he'll do oh, like yeah. the kind of the real kind of vertical frame. Yes. Uh, and so like in fantastic Mr. Fox, when they're digging right. down and you kind of see them digging past all these little artifacts when they're digging uh -huh. their fox holes. And so that's how I'm picturing it. Not as fast as, as George yeah. Clooney is digging. I imagine it's much slower <laughs> and you're moving much more dirt, but this idea of literally of living, like digging through. So you guys are like really slow time travelers. Exactly. And you're yeah. digging through these kind of layers of history. And so uh -huh. you're digging for your era, which is maybe a little lower, but you're going to, I imagine, plow through some other areas. Plow is a terrible word. You're going to <laughs> uncover a few other areas. And what do you do with those? Like, do you, you can't just go around them. Right. I mean, you know, we we you're you're even though like, you know, my time period, let's say we're I'm focusing on Iron Age to be, which is the eight, eight centuries part of that. Um, you know, we you're still going through time periods because you're basically starting from the top of the tell and you're going backwards yeah. like you're digging down. You're going back in time, basically. So you're going from the most recent to the earliest. Um, and you still, and you don't know what's down there. I mean, yeah. you have an idea if you dug elsewhere on the site, but if you're opening up a new area and you go, okay, well, I don't know what I'm going to find. So you have to yeah. treat all time periods equally, right? So we still, we document everything. That's why archaeology takes so long. Um, we document yeah. everything. We take measurements and heights of everything we take photos of everything we do drawings of everything we do all sorts of note taking and anything you could possibly think of you're doing it as you go uh so in, yeah. when i do get to the time period i'm interested in i can say okay this is where i'm going to hang tight for a bit but i've got all this other data from all these later time periods and i'm going to treat that data you know with just as much you know, respect and due diligence as I would my own time period because other scholars might come around later and say, I'm really interested in this time period at Tel Halif. And I can say, we can say, hey, all right, well, we've got all this data um, and here, right. here it is, go for it. You know, look through it, analyze it, see what you can help us understand about this site in even the later time periods. So it's, that's yeah, it's all important. And seeing like the progression of how, mm -hmm. like, 
something has even just like something little tells you such how culture change, everything kind of, you know, went through. I think that's, that's fascinating. What is the most fascinating thing that you have found? Um, I'm sorry. I just had somebody (laughs) walk by because our offices have windows that open into the hallway. Oh, I thought you were signaling to me. Like, don't ask me that. I haven't found anything fascinating. I'm in my, I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm in my office and people are always walking by, even though I have a sign on the door that says, do not disturb, um, just for this. So, um, sorry, my apologies. You can edit that part out. Um, but, um, no, you're good. Yeah. So, you know, the stuff that I find is interesting is going to be daily life stuff. Um, but I mean, it's, if you find something pretty special, that of course is always really cool. Um, my very first dig yeah. though, full-time dig as a master's student at Tel Rahov, um, my friend and I did find, um, it was in a couple pieces, but um, it's what the director of the excavation calls a model shrine, um, where mm. it would have been something that people would have used for worship in their homes. Oh, yeah. Wow. So offerings, you know, libation offerings and sacrifices to whomever. Um, and so we found it and it was in a couple pieces and it was really interesting because it ha- it didn't look like any model shrines I was familiar with um, and still not necessarily. So it's kind of round, almost looks like a little litter box with the round lid on it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. About yeah. That. Um, and um, but on the front of it, it had carved and is made out of pottery um so carved into the pottery before they fired it it had like a a lion sculpted onto it a very poor looking lion but better than i could do and its paws were outstretched Mm. in front of it and underneath it carved into the pottery were the faces of humans men and but they looked like they were scared the paws of the lion were over the heads of the the people and so it was kind of scary looking to first find it um but what's interesting now is that it's in the big israel museum in jerusalem and so i yeah i go say hi every time i've gotten there see look at this just confirmed your badassery (laughs) in case anybody was doubting that is amazing it was that is really it was pretty cool so um you know and sometimes but most of the time the stuff you find is you find a lot of broken pottery, pottery shards, some mm-hmm. animal bones, uh, but you do have to keep an eye out for those, you know, special things. And even when you, f- I just, I kind of, oh, I was just going to say, even uh, when you find, you know, like a handle of a cooking pot or not even a cooking pot, like a storage jar or, or jar of some sort, um, you can put your hands there and you can feel where the potter's hands were. Wow. And you can sometimes, sometimes you can even see like a fingerprint or a thumbprint. See, uh, this stuff is so rad. Cause I, uh, so when we're talking about the context, yeah, the, you're in the, you know, uh, era of uh, Hezekiah or whatever. So we're, we have these names, right? We have these big Bible names that uh, we associate with. And then those are intentional, right? Based on mm-hmm. whatever's being written and why that story is being told. But the, the pot or right. like the thumbprint, like that's, that's Tim in this right. era at home with his like, just yeah. this idea of this real life, uh, the folks that were living through mm-hmm. these eras. We, you know, we talked a little bit about how 
the Bible can feel very esoteric and kind of big and, right. uh, and very just kind of mythical. Right. And so all this like tangible history, this mm-hmm. real life in the living room, Joe Blow, like yeah. in his family and making dinner together. And I just think it's such a cool and wonderful thing to kind of bring to people that are like, that are maybe even struggling yeah. with, um, I don't know my place in this big mythical esoteric mm-hmm. storyline. It, it's just very yeah. interesting. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's just such proof, like even in terms of storytelling, um, when you can go far enough into your story, you can find someone else's or far enough into theirs, you can find yours. So even just thinking of what you just said of like their hands and their fingerprints is like immediately the chasm that exists in my mm-hmm. mind. It's just totally shrunk. Right. Do you know right. what I mean? It's this humanity and it's, and it brings a beautiful perspective to the Bible too. Just like you're saying, Tim, of like real people working things out in space and time. And it's, also a reminder of, um, and I think this is an end quote again, but like, um, of how God has always used people mm-hmm. like me and you to tell his right. story again and again and again. And so it's just like, it's, that's so it cool. It is really cool. And I mean, when you're, when you're digging out there and it's hot and you're tired and you're working muscles that you forgot you had, <laughs> Um, when yeah. you find something, even if it's just like, it's like every yeah, day right? in my life, yeah. <laughs> I'm not even digging. <laughs> but when you find something, even if it's just the handle of a jar or even a part of a handle and you think I mm-hmm. am the first person to see and touch this in thousands of years. Yeah. That's wild. That's nice. Right? Yeah. Have you learned anything interesting? Like when you get into those, like those old living rooms, so to speak, like, <laughs> about family dynamics or things that we don't like that we don't see or read necessarily does Mm -hmm. that make sense i don't know if that question Mm -hmm. makes sense right so um some of the areas that i work in so you know cultural and social context is the thing i'm mostly interested in but predominantly like daily life households um households and family and what the roles of men and women and adult children and children were, what did they cook? What, how did they prepare the food and all that type of stuff, feasting and hospitality. Um, So when we look at, when we're excavating these houses, um, you know, they have a pretty similar uh, floor plan Um, from Iron Age. They have a pretty similar floor plan. Uh, And one of the things that we can use to help us in our studies, because the archeology, span that just gives us the material. And then we have to kind of look at that data, look at texts and look at other things like, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of ethnography or ethnoarchaeology. So ethnography is within anthropology is when you are observing societies and trying to learn, you're like a fly on the wall, right? And yeah. it's like when you're people watching at the mall or the airport and you're just watching them and you're trying to catch little glimpses of their life just by observing them. And so ethnography does that where cultural anthropologists or ethnographers will go to a society and sometimes they'll ask questions and sometimes they'll just observe. And so what what we do is we have people who go and observe modern day, current day, traditional societies in the ancient Near East and kind of say, okay, how do they do things? 
And from what we can learn mm. from archaeology and from historical texts, does it seem like Israel could have done it this way too? Huh. Mm. Uh, and then the other aspect is ethnoarchaeology, where you're watching a current like traditional society. Let's say you're watching Bedouin women. How do they make bread? Yeah. Right. Mm. And you go, okay, this is how they make bread. How could, could this help us understand maybe how their ancient ancestors baked bread? Are yeah. these traditional methods? Right. Um, and of course, nothing is static, but um, it is very helpful. So one of the things that um, I find really helpful when I use archaeology, when I use the biblical text and other ancient Near Eastern texts, when I use ethnoarchaeology and ethnography, um, is that your household, your your two people in charge of your household are your patriarch and your matriarch, right? Mm -hmm. So when people talk about a bib, and this is when you and I were talking to him yesterday about things that, you know, bother us when people ask questions about um one of the one of the I things what topics we should avoid like, <laughs> yeah. are you tired of being asked <laughs> one of the things that always rings alarm bells in my own mind is when people use the phrase biblical worldview because when i hmm. think of biblical worldview as somebody who studies the biblical world and the biblical worldviews um, I think of something very different than what most people today think of. They're trying to think of, you know, traditional um, conservative, like family value type yeah. things. How do I do this and, right? Right. And they apply, yeah. they think that, well, it, the right way is, is told in the Bible. Right. Right. They give us, you know, oh, it should be like this, 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 and this. Well, that's right. again kind of learning to read the Bible, pro you know, better is would help i kind of read it right there um but when people say oh a biblical view of you know household norms and i'm talking old testament here um you know that household archaeology and looking at these other texts and looking at the biblical texts and and what social customs were uh you know israel would not have been as patriarchal, I think, as we like to imagine them. I mean, I guess I, they are yeah. compared to today's society, you know, trying to be those of us that are trying to be egalitarian. Um, but that the household would have been, you would have been so desperate to just survive. Yeah. Because it's subsistence mm. level survival. You're agro-pastoralists, you're agriculturalists, you're pastoralists, you're farmers. And you are trying to survive off the land and surviving off the land is very difficult when three out of five mm -hmm. years are potentially drought years. Yeah. You know, mm. so survival is the name of the game. And when you're in survival mode, which is your life, you don't really have the luxury of gender roles. Yeah. Right. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, you, you yeah. can't do this because you're a woman or you can't do this because you're a man. You can't do this because you're a child or you can't do this because you're old. The way I, and from my studies and my work is that, you know, the, the ancient Israelite and Judahite household would have been subsistence level agro-pastoralists who are just trying to survive. And yes, you know, you have your your power and authority would have been concentrated in the two senior members, which would have been your patriarch and your matriarch. 
And it seems mm -hmm. from not only my work, but many other people's work that women were primarily in control of the household food ways. Yeah. Uh, primarily because if you're, if you're going to say, okay, if, is there anything that could have said to people, no, you, you're, there's determining factors that say, okay, well, that tell you what you can and can't do. And one of that only determining factors would be a biological factor. You know, a woman's role as a reproductive role would have been super important to that world. Yeah. And so of course mm. she's not going to go plowing a field when she's eight months pregnant. <laughs> you know, right? Uh, no, she's right? not. <laughs> so, I mean, if we think, yeah. okay, your household, your house, wouldn't have just been a place to live. It's also where you worked. Yeah. So when people say, oh, you know, biblical people, wife wouldn't have worked outside the home. Well, no, she wouldn't have, but either would have her husband or her children or anybody else for that matter. Uh, your average right. people, you would have all lived and worked on the family farm. So cool. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and that food, because of the woman's reproductive role, having to be do household chores maybe closer to the actual house, maybe not going out into the field unless, you know, it's right. harvest Right, there's some of that that's just biological. Right, biological yeah. stuff take, plays a big role. But it, when it comes time for mm -hmm. harvest and planting, um, everyone would have been out in the fields helping. Everyone. Yeah, um, everyone. If men yeah. go to war, as they often would, you don't just stop the family farm, the family... <laughs> still works the farm and it would have been predominantly yeah. the women and children and maybe the yeah. old men who were there. Yeah. So because yeah. of the woman's reproductive role, being around the home more because of that role, um, it seems that right. the matriarch in particular would have been in charge of the household foodways, which is a lot of power mm. and authority. Like who can eat? When can they eat? How much can they eat? what goes into storage, yeah. what is distributed and how much is distributed, mm. what's, how much is stored, how much do we trade and barter with other people. So there's all of mm -hmm. this stuff and just food, <laughs> you know, all yeah. this yeah. social implications yeah. for just the re for how people prepared food and what they did with their harvests and stuff. Yeah. So, well, again, it's just back to the macro versus micro right. um, and how we view how we do the things. That's really good. I'm going to be thinking about that yeah. for a while. That's really good. So yeah. Cynthia, thank you. First of all, I think this is such a cool conversation. I kind of imagine you guys like, like when on a movie or something, and like when Sherlock walks into a thing and you watch him, he like back plays the crime and only he can, only he can <laughs> yes, see it. And I was yeah. like, I kind of see you guys, like, you guys dig down there and you get into that living room. Then you look at it and you're just scanning and you're like playing this whole, like, history back in your mind of kind yeah. of everything that it's just a very cool <laughs> it's a it's a fun like i said i'm very visual so i i don't have a choice but to play it that way i but. was picturing that too but nancy Drake. <laughs> yes um so so i want to make sure that people the, that those bibles it was the niv um can you just yeah, say the again? NIV cultural background cultural study background, bible yeah. And then the um, the new Oxford Annotated Study Bible, which is an NRSV. Um, yeah, those are the two English. And if you want to study under Cynthia, if you didn't hear it, <laughs> Jessup. William Jessup University <laughs> out here in California. 
Cynthia, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, you're thank very you, welcome. Cynthia. This is awesome. This has been so cool. All right. Gosh, I seriously, I know I said that in there, but she's amazing. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. I've been excited. I only I've only recently met her um during our remove back up here. Remove our move back here. Yeah. We moved I don't know how to say that. Remove sounds opposite, but we're we moved to back home. Oh, we moved Jeez. again home. <laughs> That's a complicated sentence that doesn't need to be complicated. Uh, but yeah, I, I, for me, it's a very like such an interesting. I love the I love when people can bring tangible mm-hmm. um, things into faith, and I think we talk about in there how faith can be so um, kind of just like this cloud of ideas and whatever. Yeah. And so her bringing in like this you know, this is from this time period when this was happening. And, uh, I, I just love it. I think mm-hmm. it's so fascinating. I think it's so helpful to, uh, adding some concrete to our faith, to the foundation of our faith. Yeah. And you know what it did to me is this week. Cause like, so we recorded this a week ago and then Tim and I let it sit for a while and then we come back and record an outro or whatever after we have some um, reactions to it and um is I was found myself like walking around my house being like oh my gosh if someone were to just come in here and like find my home or um I don't know it's like buried in a rubble like she was talking about but um what would they what could they deduce about me and our family yeah. and what's important to us or what our life was like based on our things in our home that was a weird. I think they this would house say had a Peloton bike. <laughs> I think they would say the kids ran this home. The kids, <laughs> the kids, and the dog ran this yeah. home. Um, they can say like this guy was a hoarder. No, he had lots of records and books and. But no, he. They'd be like, see, like the arts were important to him or whatever. Like it's so funny. My parents are they're um, coming up on their they're like in their mid to late seventies. And my dad, he never, ever, he wears like the same shirt and pants for like, he has like a pair, like three of them, three shirts, three pants. He wears them for like 25 years till they're like done. And then he gets three more and that kind of thing. Well, so when I was there last time, he like pulls out this stack of t-shirts and he's like, I'm getting rid of these. And I'm like, why? And he's like, I don't know. When I die someday, I don't want somebody coming in here going, man, this guy, all he cared about was clothes. I'm like, first of all, are you outliving all of us? <laughs> like that someone is me. <laughs> like, second of all, I promise they won't say that about you. <laughs> Dang, Dad, you have five T-shirts. Exactly. Don't let your dad ever come to my house, or maybe let him come over here, and uh, Shauna can show him my like 200 T-shirts. There you go. But it really does make I have you a think. Problem. No, well, and it makes you also think too. It's just about like. I don't know. This interesting thing is that we say it, but we, it really is true. Like we don't leave the world with anything. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? We just don't. And, um, so it's just interesting. It just makes you think about, I don't know what you buy and what all the things around us say about the culture. Like we said at the beginning, like I always, I always talk about this to my mom. I'm like, mom, when you were growing up or you were in high school or whatever, like, did you, did y'all exercise? like for fun and she's like no we did sports um but nobody like went out and ran like that wasn't important or whatever and it's just such a shift now yeah of like 
oh, that's so fascinating. Cause now we're like, you have to exercise 30 minutes. You have to, you know, and some of it's like, we've learned it for health reasons and things like that, but it's just a shift in culture. So it's just, I don't know, little things like that. I loved that part about what she said about like, um, we learned about like what they ate for dinner. And so then we knew yeah. what the weather was like and we knew what the crops were like and the people were like, and so that was interesting. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also, I Oh, sorry. You go. <laughs> I found it interesting when she said, and I still don't know what as what I think about this when she said, it wasn't as uh, patriarchal as we've made it out to be. Yeah. Um, and I wonder her definition there of patriarchy versus our definition now, like the definition then versus now. Because what she said made sense. Like the women, they weren't, they were at home because they were pregnant or they were, that makes total sense to me. Um, but it made me think in my head about when we allow like some of those natural rhythms to be the only rhythms, I guess, if that makes sense. But then back mm -hmm. then, I don't know. I don't know. It just makes me wonder if there was ever, um, and I'm sure there were, but moments where someone was like, yeah, this might be what I was, I'm naturally supposed to give child, do childbearing and things like that. But I want to step out of that. I don't know. Just something I was thinking. Of. I have no idea. That'd be a great follow-up question. Um, yeah. Cause you do think it's the, you, you do think, and I wonder if it's just this, the, so I had this conversation in my classes yesterday. We were, uh, had them watch, um, you know, David Letterman has his talk show on Netflix now. Oh yes. I love that one. Yeah. So we, we, I had them, I was going to have them watch the Malala documentary, but it was too long for class. So oh. we watched his interview with her instead. Oh, I haven't watched that one yet. Okay. And so they're, the kids are writing, um, the students are writing, uh, uh, definition essays right now. So they have to find something and define it. Okay. Uh, and it, and it has to be an abstract term. So it has to be something like love or hope that has kind of a nebulous definition that can, it's different for everybody. Right. right. And everybody has different history with it. Whereas like a rock or a chair is a concrete thing and it's, you can define it in 10 words, you know? So yeah. That they, they have to do an abstract idea. So some of them are doing that, these colloquial like, um, for example, I love this kind of stuff so much. Um, something like the the term "dead ringer." Oh yeah, and, yeah. And so like, did we already talk about this on here? No. Am I repeating myself? Like this. So if you guys haven't heard that before, like "dead ringer" now is kind of like, oh, he's a dead ringer for that guy. Like he looks exactly like that person. But the term over time it originally pe they would tie bells on the people when they would bury them just in case the person was still alive when they got buried and they could ring a bell oh and, my gosh and say hey uh i'm not dead too soon <laughs> yeah. so over time that somehow those these phrases like that like um don't look a gift horse in the mouth and mm -hmm. blood is thicker than water um all these yeah. phrases all had different meanings when they started right and over time it's like a game of telephone where the phrase hasn't changed, but the meaning has changed. Mm -hmm. So some of the kids that were struggling with finding topics, I was like, well, try this one. This is so interesting. Try this one. This is so interesting. Mm. So all that to say, the Malala thing, I was like, I want you guys to watch this as a definition essay. I want you to listen to what it is that she's arguing for. How does she define it? What does she use to define it? Mm. So yeah. um, she's talking about you know, uh, educational rights for women and how everybody should have a, have access to education right the difference that it makes on the economy that it makes in society the difference that it makes for health and a family all these great she's 
a wildly intelligent, you know, at this time, 18, 18 year old kid right. who had been shot in the face. And if you're not familiar with Malala, you should, she's, I, it's, it's a crazy story and a very uh, inspiring story. And Letterman asks her about revenge, getting mm. revenge on things. And she talks about how she's trying to rewrite part of that culture to be that re- that forgiveness is how they, because they still have honor killings in some of, in her oh, yeah. area. So like if you, if someone has dishonored you, you can, you know, <laughs> you can go and kill that person. And she's like, we're trying to rewrite that though and make it about forgiveness and that forgiveness is the best version of revenge. And Wow. Um, I kind of watched so, that now. Yeah, it's a fascinating interview. David Letterman, I I love him anyway, so it's an easy yeah. thing for me to latch on to. I didn't but realize this. Is this this? She's in the second season. Yeah, I watched the first season, but I haven't watched. She's the in the second. first season. Oh, she is. I think she comes after Obama. It's like Obama and oh, her and okay. George Clooney and Tina Fey. I think are like the first Jay Z for the first season. But oh, I must have anyway. Just all that, that to say okay. that she, um, I mean, she got shot in the face because as a fifteen-year-old, she um she was already campaigning and championing champ championing mm-hmm. um educational rights for women mm. in her area and how how women uh had been denied education for so long she was outspoken about all that kind of stuff and then the taliban came into their area and said hey no more women are no longer allowed to get be educated and they're not allowed to be in the marketplace mm. and these different things and she kept talking about it as a kid and her dad kept telling her, like, just don't say the, just don't say Taliban, don't say Taliban, don't say Taliban. You can talk about education, just don't say Taliban. And she kept getting up there and just being like, Taliban, like we have to give it a name. We're giving it a wow. name. Like it's a fifteen-year-old. And uh, and so they walked on the bus, you know, and they shot her in the face, and she survived. And wow, uh, it's inspired this huge thing. But that that idea of this patriarchy in that sense is mm. like this idea that women. Like a lot of that still is is still so prevalent. Yeah, yeah. And we're over here, and so we're talking. We're trying to have a discussion with students in class about, you know, America is unique in some ways. Where you get to go to college and kind of decide what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this the vocation, the theology vocation stuff with Sky, where a lot of people, um, if your dad's a cobbler, you're most likely going to become a cobbler, right. and your son is going to be a cobbler, cobbler, and if you're a woman. You're not gonna do much. You, you don't get to do much of anything. You'll be in the home taking care of mm-hmm. things, and so it's an interesting. Like, I wonder. All that was a very long version to say. Like when you think about World War II, and uh, when men went to war, and you know, you can see it in fun versions like A League of Their Own, how the women took over the professional baseball. Yeah, all of a sudden yeah, it became yeah, yeah. women playing baseball. As women, they were working the munitions lines. Women came and kind of took over all this stuff in America because the men were gone. And it's just like these silent heroes that kind of like, they're already holding things together behind the scenes. Yeah. And then all the men disappear for a little while and they kind of swoop in and make sure that like America keeps running. Yeah. In the meantime. And then the men come home and they just kind of go back to their places. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. It's really interesting. So I wonder if a lot of it's like that where the women are holding together. That was a very long way to come back around to this but yeah no i love that i love that picture of the women kind of holding down the fort almost yeah and keeping things alive and keeping things going and Mm -hmm. you know when malala one of the things that she's arguing for is that you know women getting education helps the economy it helps um uh society helps these different things but one of the things that she said is it also helps the health of the family the more educated a mother is Mm. 
the healthier her kids can be. And I was like, oh, I've never, that version of that, like the economy makes sense. These other things make sense. I never had heard it even, and she just said it as like a throwaway, right? like a third, a third point thing. But, um, so I don't know. I think it's really interesting. And I think kind of digging into that kind of stuff and, you know, we've had a long, uh, we've been having a long conversation about context, which I think is just one of the most important conversations to be having. Yep. And learning through all these different scholars about this is how this should be read. And um, Cynthia talks a little about the genres of the Bible, which I yeah, think I loved is that. Yeah, so fascinating. Yeah, it was cool. She did a great job. I'd love to have her on again. She was awesome. Yeah, I feel like I just talked a lot. I said that like I didn't know who was in charge of having people on. <laughs> Like, like when I said that, it dawned on me like, oh, you could just email her. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like the idea that you and I are just sitting here and then we're, we turn on the computer and it's, we don't know who the guest is. And it's a oh, person just hello. pops up and we're like, hey, who are you? All right, let's have a conversation. What are we talking about? Whatever. And I do feel that I way get... sometimes anyway. I know. Oh, it's so good. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed it and that it sparked something in you. And um, also look at Jessup. <laughs> that, that was in there <laughs> so that was perfect <laughs> that's good that's rich oh dang until next time until next week <laughs> thank you so much for listening you guys we'll see you soon bye <laughs>